have reached the, uh, the last section of the wonderful, wacky world of the book of Zechariah. If you remember some months ago, I told you that when we entered into this book, be prepared for Zechariah to be like a roller coaster, taking his twists and turns and loops and dives and craziness all over the place. And I think it has not failed. We have been on this roller coaster for some time now, and today we reach its conclusion. And in this conclusion, it ends with a bang. It ends with craziness. It ends with strange and weird language. And it's wonderful, and it's really cool when we look at it. And before I enter in and ask you to rise and read God's Word, just an idea of where we're headed for the summer months, we're going to be in the Psalms for the summer. Uh, We've done this the last couple summers, and it seems to be just a a nice respite to to enter into the book of Psalms over the summer months, to, to just enter into how the Lord teaches us to sing and to praise and to worship, and and to explore all of our emotions and our thoughts and and who we are as God's people. So that's where we'll be through Labor Day weekend, um, starting next week. So if you are able, please rise as we read the concluding verses of Zechariah, from verses 14, or chapter 14, uh, verses 12 to the conclusion in verse 21. Hear the reading of God's Word. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected. Excuse me. Gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all whose sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take the words of this, your humble servant, and carry them to those gathered here in this sanctuary, to those gathered online either today or someday in the future, that you would mold and shape lives, that your truth, your grace will be proclaimed on this day. It's in the strong name of Jesus we pray all of these things. Amen. You may be seated. What's your favorite food? You ever think about lots of things? Don't get ahead of me. What's your favorite food? Now, that could be a really big question, right? Depending on the context and depending on where you're at and what's going on, right? Some of us, it rolls off of our tongue really quickly and we can just 
my favorite food is this. But if you're like me, sometimes it's just depending on the context. If you're a Friday night and what's your favorite food on a Friday night? Well, without any doubt, it's, it's pizza, right? If you're in breakfast, well, without any doubts, it's French toast. And by the way, just another plug for guys, if you didn't come with us on Saturday, yesterday, for men's breakfast, you missed it. They had really good French toast and eggs and bacon, just saying. If you want to talk about something where you're going out for a special date or to remember or commemorate something or an anniversary, probably pizza and French toast is not your best bet. Guys, just so forewarned. Maybe steak and some lobster and a nice wine to go with it, right? So what is your favorite food? What about holiday food? Do you like turkey or ham? I will say the food at Thanksgiving is not my favorite. Just don't like it. It's boring. It's bland. It doesn't have a lot of taste. So in my family, our family, we have shifted away from turkey and mashed potatoes and brown gravy And we've gone to things like smoked ham with a jalapeno pineapple glaze. It's really good. You can come and taste it, and you will put away your turkey, I promise. It's interesting to me, though, however, that generations change their taste, and they forget. For my grandparents, and even my parents, and maybe for many of you, Thanksgiving meal is absolutely the best, and you wait for it all year long to have turkey and mashed potatoes and brown gravy. Thanksgiving for many of you, was absolutely the best thing. But over the course of time, things change. And we disagree on what should be served at Thanksgiving. Some of us want to hold fast to the old things. Some of us want to move forward. But here in Zechariah 14, the conclusion of this book, he's asking the people to remember and to look back. To look back just like we do at our Thanksgiving, no matter what you're eating to remember that the Lord has provided. And we're to give thanks for the bounty and the generosity that he's given to us. The Lord's asking the people here at the conclusion to remember their thanksgiving. The Lord draws the people to remember the Feast of Booths. But what is the Feast of Booths? We we read about it and we heard it said three or four or five different times in in our passage here this morning. But for many of us, what, what in the world are you talking about, Zechariah? Why do you keep repeating this over and over again? It was the last of the Hebrew feasts in the fall to commemorate the bounty of the harvest and to celebrate just what it is that the Lord has done for them. The fruit of the harvest. It was their Thanksgiving. I don't know what they ate. They probably didn't eat turkey and mashed potatoes with brown gravy. I don't know what it is, but it's also much more than that at the very same time. He wants the people not only to remember their favorite foods, but he wants them to remember him. You see, the Feast of Booths was primarily primarily a feast to remember. To remember the wilderness journey of Egypt as they came out of Egypt into Canaan. When God made the people live in booths, and we see this, if you're interested, go to Leviticus chapter 23, and you'll see this is what the Lord had the people do. They lived in tents as they made their way through the wilderness. And so during the time of the feast, each Israelite family was supposed to construct a booth to remember where they had been in the past and what the Lord had done for them. And they were to live in it for a week. Now, I'm really glad we don't do that at Thanksgiving. To, co- to also combine with turkey and mashed potatoes, then you have to go live in a tent for a week. No thanks. But this is what they did. These booths were small. 
and they were thatched normally with palms or other types of plants. And <clears throat> according to one commentator and one interpretation of verse 41 in Leviticus chapter 23, they were decorated with all kinds of fruit that was grown in Palestine to remember the bounty that the Lord was doing and had done for them. And later on in the story, as the, as the booth as the festival began to enter into the time of, uh, of the culture of the people, they also now began to introduce water into the ceremony and into the festivities in the same sense that the priests would go to the pool of Shalom and, Shalom and they would draw from that water during the Feast of Booths. And this was part of what the priests would do for the people as time went on. In addition to that, Moses often warned the Israelites not to forget. Don't forget where you've come from. Don't forget what the Lord has done for you. Don't forget that it is the Lord who redeemed them out of slavery and brought them into the promised land. This reveals then the ultimate and primary purpose of the Feast of Booths. It could be tempting for the Israelites to sit back, to get fat and lazy, and say, we've arrived. And here we are, now let's just hoard all the blessings that God's given to us. But each and every year, they moved out of their houses into a tent, gave up the comfort, gave up the normalcy to remember where they had come from, to remember just what the Lord had done for them. This was how they remembered. They did it not only in their minds, but they did it in their bodies, a tangible reminder of his provision to his people. At the conclusion of Zechariah, as he did at the outset, The prophet is pleading with the people of Israel as he's pleading with you and me here this morning. Remember. Remember. Remember that our hope and our salvation, just as the people of Israel remembered their hope and their salvation, was not in themselves, but it was the Lord God who took them out of Egypt and parted the sea and brought them into the promised land. They realize and they remember that God is their hope. He is their salvation, and he is the one that promises to always be that for them. It's in the person and the work of the Lord, their God in whom they put their trust. So again, the refrain from Zechariah chapter 1, return to me, echoes in the back of our minds. Throughout the entirety of the book of Zechariah, the prophet has guided the people who were in a war-torn city, trying to rebuild it to hope in the Lord, to trust Him as their source of all comfort, all security, and all peace. And in this, yet again, bizarre last section of a bizarre book, the call goes out again. It goes out to the people of Israel, and it goes out to you and to me. Remember. Remember that the Lord is the Lord who faithfully keeps His promises to His people. Remember that He continues to make promises and to be faithful to his promises that he will never leave or forsake us. The Lord makes three promises here in Zechariah 14 at the end. He says to us that he will defeat our enemies. He says to us in a second promise that Jesus will reign forever. And the third promise that he says is you will be made holy. And the Lord is faithful to these promises. So let's look at these three promises, starting in verse 12 and, and into 15 is our first promise that we see that the Lord will defeat our enemies. The people of Israel know all too well the fear and the horror of war, don't they? 
They've, they've seen it. They've, they've, they've seen their city destroyed. They've, they've seen their loved ones lost. They've seen their jobs lost, their homes lost. They've seen everything scatter and be brought to ruin and rubble. They know this all too well. They've seen it. They've lived it. They know what it means to lose everything. This is why for the people hearing this prophecy, there is a, a collective exuberance almost of, of, you know, there's a saying now that in, in all kinds of the kids, let's go, right? You can hear as they, as they read this and they hear these verses of the Lord saying he's going to make flesh rot and eyes rot and tongues rot against the enemies of the people. And you can almost, let's go. This is what the feeling is. This is the sense. This is the drama of, of what they must be feeling of having their enemies surround them at all the time. And here the Lord promises them, I will defeat your enemies, and here is how I will do it. The prophet then lays out a few ways in which the, enemy, the enemies of the Lord will be defeated. And this is not for the faint of heart, is it? Again, not PG, not PG-13, probably once again, a mature audience only type of thing. The first is that their flesh will be mutilated. These are the words that are not for a weak stomach. This is an image of complete destruction. And not even destruction, but of abject humiliation. The Lord's not just going to defeat them. He's going to humiliate them. That their flesh will rot. The word, is, the word here for this is used is, is plague. It's the same word used to describe what came to the spies, if you remember. The, the spies were sent out to, to, to look into the, to the promised land. And the spies came back and they issued a false report. And there was a plague that was forced upon them. It's the same word used here in Zechariah as it was and that story, it's a punishment for spreading a lie, for casting a false narrative about who the Lord is and what His promises are and how He's faithful to His people. It is the result of creating this false story about lying about the Lord and who He is and about who His people are. We see this reinforced as the Lord says that because of all the lies and false narratives, how do we lie? We use our mouths, right? Our tongues form words as they touch our teeth and move in our mouths. What does Zechariah say? Their tongues will rot in their mouth because they issue a false story about the Lord and His people. Flesh will be mutilated. Eyes will rot. Tongues will rot. The second way the Lord defeats his enemies as we move forward is a great panic will spread throughout the camp of the enemy. And if eyes falling out and tongues rotting in the mouth and flesh rotting isn't enough or isn't humiliating enough, isn't devastating enough, he goes further to say there is more to the story of the defeat of God's enemy than just that. It's the image of Gideon and his 300 men. Do you remember as, as Gideon went in to face the army of Midian in the middle of the night? And these 300 men never lifted a sword. But the camp of Midian fought against themselves and they destroyed one another and they slayed each other to the very end. It's the image of Second Chronicles where the godly king Jehoshaphat watched as the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the Lord's enemies who lived upon Mount Seir and they defeated them. But then after they defeated the Lord's enemies, they turned on each other and defeated themselves. 
as the godly king of Jehoshaphat and his people watched. This is how the Lord does things. This is how he works, is that his enemies destroy themselves. It's how the Lord operates. One commentator says that this is not only a picture of how the Lord achieves a victory, but it's an apt picture of hell itself. Quote, hell shall be hate in fiercest and fullest forms. Sin is now the cause of all quarrels on earth. It shall be the cause of endless quarrels in hell. This scene of people fighting against themselves, destroying themselves, mutilating themselves, this is sin left to itself. So what does this have to do with us here today? Why does a prophet even say these words to them or to us? I want to put before you this morning that yes, there is hope and victory in how the Lord defeats his enemies. But there's something altogether more horrifying about these words. There's something all more terrible about these words. Because who are the Lord's enemies? The Lord's enemies are anyone who rejects the Lord for who he is. Who spreads a false narrative about who he is. That could be some of us in this room. That could be some of us in Arlington, Texas. United States of America and the world. The Lord's enemies are not entirely defeated yet here, so there is absolute terror and devastation for the Lord's enemies, for those who don't acknowledge who the Lord is and what he has done. There's absolute horror in being condemned to hell. This is what this is describing. It's a warning about denying the existence and the power and the grace of the Lord our God. There's some talk even in our contemporary circles that hell is not that bad. It's actually a place that sinners wouldn't mind going for they can finally be just let alone. I can live my life. Do what I want to do finally. I don't have to have this pressure of whatever morality uh, structure or mechanism you want to put on me. It's the kind of place where it's all right And even in some theological circles, even in our own, hell is just an absence of the presence of God. That's all it is. It's really not all that bad. It's just the absence of God. But the condemnation and the fury and justice are hardly gone. And we see this here in Zechariah 14. We also see it in the end of Revelation too, right? A Revelation also, correct? Where John, who sees this, he he describes it in a lake of fire and sulfur that people are constantly being tormented. So whether you want to take these things figuratively or realistically, the fact of the matter remains that hell is not a place you want to be. Now this is not meant to be a bullying tactic by your pastor to bully you into obedience and submission. It's just laying out the word of God. To say if You do not acknowledge the Lord for who He is. You are an enemy of God, and if you are an enemy of God, your flesh will rot, your eyes will fall out, and your tongues will rot in your mouth. Not a scare tactic. But the reality of hell. The reality of what it means to not acknowledge the Lord for who He is. This is the word of the Lord giving to us stark horrors and terrors of sin and the rejection of the Lord. Again, then the refrain of Zechariah chapter 1 comes in, return, return, return to me and I will return to you. 
the call goes out to each and every one of us, return to the Lord. For none of us want to taste this horror and this tragedy. Who is the Lord to you today? Do you acknowledge Him for who He is, your Savior, your God, your King? The comfort from the book of Zechariah is not only found in the defeat of the Lord's enemies, however, but in the corresponding result of the victory. Often in a war, when an enemy is defeated, what happens? The incumbent government is kicked out, and a new one ushers in. For better or worse, a new government is established in this conquered land. We have seen that the Lord has and will defeat his enemies. The incumbent incumbent governor of sin, death, and destruction has been defeated, and a new king does indeed now sit on the throne of heaven. For as much as the torment of hell is the lasting defeat of the enemies of God, being in the presence of Jesus is the reward that we have in heaven. This is what we desire. This is what we truly want. Verses 16 and 19 tell us repeatedly to remember the Feast of Booths that we talked about. I apologize. My contact is going bananas on me here this morning. Please forgive me. Ultimately, we are to remember the Lord, but what is specifically that we are to remember? Especially given what the prophet has just described to us in the preceding verses. So just a quick review. The Feast of Booths is to remember. To remember what the Lord has done for them. His salvation, His care, His comfort, and how He has defeated the people's enemies The second is that the Lord will gather the nations to himself. The idea of as a feast is that people are together, right? Normally we do not feast alone, but we feast with large amounts of people. At least that's the way it's designed to. And when we feast, we are to commemorate or to remember something or someone that's special to us. That's important to us. Thanksgiving, we remember the bounty and the generosity of our Lord. The last feast I was at, in a strange, wonderful kind of way, was when my dad passed away, and everybody after the funeral got together downstairs in the church basement, and we had a wonderful feast, and honestly, there was lots of laughter. There was lots of good memories. There was stories being shared. There were tears cried, sure, but we feast to remember someone that we love, remember a life and a generosity. This is what the feast is asking us and calling us to do, to remember who the Lord is. So Zechariah is reinforcing the fact that the enemies have, yes, been defeated, but also to remember who accomplished this task. That he's always defeated our enemies. He always will defeat our enemies, and he continues to do that today. But it's more than just remember the fact of the Lord's victory. It's also to remember that the Lord Jesus came from heaven. He took on flesh. He lived and he died. So as they leave their homes and they enter into a tent... So too, Jesus left his home in heaven, took on flesh, and he died, even a death on a cross. That Jesus would then dwell, or the Hebrew word, tabernacle, or tent, with his people. The fact that Jesus is present and that he reigns is what this is all about. This then not only shows the sovereign victory of Jesus, but his sovereign presence among his people as he sits upon the throne of the universe forever established as a now incumbent king. 
As we've seen in the book of Zechariah, that he is a prophet that continually and purposely looks forward to Jesus as the hope and the security of the people of God. So as we conclude Zechariah, let us remember this is all about Jesus. The entire book is about Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, what did we see? If you remember, we saw two trees that represented the union of priest and king. In chapter 6, we saw that the priest was established forever. In chapter 7 and 8, we saw that the Lord puts an end to fasting and inaugurates feasting. In chapter 9, the Lord Jesus comes as the gentle king. In chapter 10, he's the cornerstone. In 11, the good shepherd. In 12, he is the one who is pierced. In 13, he is the fountain of mercy and generosity and grace. Now in 14, we see his victory. We see his faithfulness on display as a prophet looks to the end of the age. It's here where we are able to grasp and gaze upon the ultimate glory and victory of the Lord. He is the reigning king. He is the one who defeats our enemies. He's the one that actually receives glory and homage from all the nations, even those who are defeated. This is the message of the entirety of the Bible summarized in an Old Testament prophecy called Zechariah, that Jesus will reign forever. As wonderful and glorious a place that would be to stop at that moment, the prophet doesn't end right there, does he? He concludes his prophecy by talking about us being holy. Jesus defeats his enemies. He reigns victoriously forever. And you're made holy. There's more to our story. For looking at the end of the age is encouraging and uplifting. But for us, that seems out there somewhere. Not quite sure when that day is coming. And I'm still living my life with all of my anxiety, fear, all of these things. Pain, sorrow, tragedy. So how do we look at the conclusion of Zechariah chapter 14? It's really hard for me to look at the end of the age when I live in 2022. What does this have for me? As we have seen, we take great comfort in the fact that the Lord is already victorious. This is accomplished in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. We place our hope in that, but we receive our hope and security in the outpouring and the outworking of the Lord as he accomplishes his mission and will for our lives here and today. A few weeks from now, July 5th to be exact, Heidi and I will celebrate an anniversary. We will be celebrating 25 years of marriage, believe it or not, on July 5th. And many of us recall our wedding days with much fondness. I am no different. I remember the moment that the doors of the sanctuary opened And I was standing in a similar kind of church over here, and I saw my soon-to-be wife being escorted down the aisle with her dad, escorting her in between the the crowd of people that were gathered there. And I'm the romantic between the two of us, and she was and remains to be the most beautiful woman in the world. And she walked down the aisle, dressed in her white wedding dress, The smile that was on her face was wonderful, and her dad's might have been bigger. And I wonder, was it really 25 years ago? Yes. It was a large wedding with many guests. And they were standing as she made her escorted way towards her groom. 
There's a reason the Lord uses that image to communicate so much to us. There's a reason the Lord uses weddings, groom, bride, to describe to us his relationship with us. There's so much emotion, love, excitement, anticipation, and celebration that's taking place in that very moment. The image of a bride in her white dress, signifying holiness, signifying that she is her groom's and he is hers. That is an image of Jesus and his church. And she must be holy. She must be washed white in the blood of the Lamb. This is exactly the picture that the prophet desires for us to see this morning. That we are made holy. That the work of being made holy is going on right now in your lives, in my life. Just as the Lord worked in the life of the groom and the bride to bring them together in the front of the stage to join in marriage, so too the Lord is working in our lives to make us, His church, His bride, holy for that day in the future. But the work is going on right now to to mold us and to shape us, to make us holy, to present to us before our groom on that day in the future on that wedding day of Christ and His bride. The prophet concludes the book with a wonderful passage. And there shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. What a picture of holiness. There's no more sin. There's nobody working behind the scenes trying to coerce, trying to lie, trying to spread false narratives. It's all gone. The holiness is there. There's nothing that will come between us and Jesus. There's no traitor. There's no sin. It's a bride and her groom. A groom and his bride. Sin is removed. The dress is white. Tears wiped away. The dress is white. Sorrow wiped from our hearts. The dress is white. What an image. We are made holy. We are made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit working this in us. However, and wherever we find ourselves this morning, we know that He who began a good work in you will complete it, and He is faithful to do so. This is the hope and the security that we have. The hope and security is that we, the church, will be escorted down the aisle by God the Father, presented to our groom, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, washed white in the blood of the Lamb. This is accomplished because He's defeated His enemies. This is accomplished because He reigns victorious. This is accomplished because we're made holy through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Lord is faithful to do this because He's a promise keeper. What a list of promises. Amen. Let's pray.
our Lord and our God. Make us holy. Make us holy through this table. Make us holy through your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your forgiveness. Lord, work in us to be your people. Lord, we give you thanks for how you love us and care for us. We give you thanks for how you work in our lives each and every day. And so, Lord, be faithful to those promises. Be faithful to defeat our enemies. Be faithful that you will reign forever. Be faithful to bring us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.